The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Previously. I went outside today, I couldn't believe it was January. It is January, isn't it? Yes. January 7th. In the end, there's a very, very old philosophical principle at stake here. And that is that the truth is the truth is the truth. However many lies are told, however many people tell the lies, and however important the people who tell the lies conceive themselves to be. When I left Greenpeace, it was in the midst of them adopting a campaign to ban chlorine worldwide. Like I said, you guys, this is one of the elements in the periodic table, you know. I mean, I'm not sure if that's in our jurisdiction to be banning a whole element. There's a buzzword in the Lovins' vision. This is a very efficient house. Efficient. Efficiency. Efficient. Super efficiency. Efficient. That super efficiency. This may be the world's most efficient cooktop. Did you see the water efficient stuff? Yeah. Yeah. What are we being? We got to go? Okay, well, we're going to take a We got break. a fire alarm. We've got to get out of here. Okay. Oh, imagine that. Excitement. Okay. There's no fire in there. No, I turned it off. Folks, we won't be having a second show today. You're We will be giving you each a free pass to a future presentation at Good morning, London. It's Thursday, January 14, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Now, last week on Just Right, somebody yelled fire in a crowded UCC building, and Robert and I were forced to evacuate the building and thus abandon the show. Oh, about eight or nine minutes before the show was scheduled to end, eh, Robert? It was kind of a sudden ending to the show. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah, we were just talking about global warming when things got kind of hot, I guess, eh? (laughs) I just want everybody to know I was willing to go down with the ship, okay? I I wasn't moving until they told me to move. Okay, I wasn't. (laughs) I was on my way out the door. You were, were you? (laughs) Well, welcome to the show today. We're 519-661-3600 is a number you can call to join us in our conversation today, which will be a bit of a continuation from our theme last week. You can also email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com and visit one of either two websites for the current stuff, uh, chrwradio.com, and you can also visit our archive at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, when we were so rudely interrupted last week by, uh, by the fire alarm, <laughs> I was just getting into, a, we, we had just talked about um, the whole green thing, and we were talking about a little bit of... Um, you know, the whole climate gate issue and, of course, Copenhagen. And we we wrapped up a little bit of the things like that. But I was getting into a completely different point. And I think if today's theme is anything, even though we'll be talking about a number of issues, we will be talking about efficiency and and waste and what that means to different people in different situations. We'll be talking about uh, why government's inefficient and what government really should be doing with respect to the whole global warming issue. And nearer the end of the show, although we'll still be talking sort of about um, the environment, the, the focus then will be the economy. And we're going to be talking about why Bill Clinton might have said, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> okay. So... Just to start where I left off uh, last week, actually not right where I left off, I can actually embellish this issue a little more because we were, I was only going to get about eight minutes to talk about it last week, and now I'm going to take the whole darn show. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've been talking about green and about all these wonderful things that people think that they can do for the planet. And wh- what about the elephant in the room? You know, it's not about green. It's about energy. Really, that's what everything is about. Anything you time you t- talk to people about green, they're talking about energy. And, and the government's probably inability to provide it? That's exactly it. And I think what we've created out of that is something called a cult of, what I would call the cult of efficiency. It's, al- it's almost become a cult. And uh, it was really funny, one of the clips we played last week, uh, one of the quoted green shirts on the show said, inefficiency is a valuable resource, you know. And I'm thinking if that were true, then inefficiency, not efficiency, would be what we all value, wouldn't it? 
Hmm. <laughs> and if inefficiency is a resource, then Africa is richer than America. Because, boy, are they ever inefficient over there, right? So, you know, you, that's the kind of language you hear the whole issue being discussed in, in all these uh, non-sequitur terms. So if it sounds nuts to you, then join the club, because it sure sounds wacko to me. Yet this is the kind of language and thinking that permeates, I think, you know, public discussion on three key areas of the current debate and discourse. Number one, I would say uh, the environment and global warming. Uh, number two, the economy. And number three, government itself. And we'll be touching on each of those elements today. At least these are the three, you know, that we'll be dealing with. And in the midst of it all, today's catchword is efficiency. And, of course, that's the positive expression of an idea. The negative expression is waste. To be inefficient is to waste. And, of course, waste is evil, or so say the little green devils. Uh, they're really red underneath, though, you know, Robert. Just, just pick at <laughs> their green camouflage, and you'll be surprised by what you might find underneath. Now, here's an example of two-dimensional thinking in what I call the four-dimensional universe. <laughs> and this, is, this appeared in the London Free Press on January 2nd of this month. And it says, Behavior more than technology saves energy. I briefly related to this last week, but didn't really get into it. And, uh, you know, behavior more than technology saves energy. I looked at that, and I'm thinking, well, there's an obvious flaw there, because you'd have to argue, then, that burning wood in a wood stove is as energy-saving as a high-efficiency furnace, you know, as long as you adjust your behavior. <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm, st I'm waiting for you to drop the other shoe. I'm, I'm not yeah. getting it. Okay. Well, you know, here's, here's what the article says. Conservation and attitude go hand in hand. Environmentalist Peter Love cites a recent study from Sweden in which identical homes were equipped with the same heating and cooling systems and the same appliances, but one home consumed twice as much energy as the other. That tells me it's totally behavioral, says the man who served as Ontario's first chief energy conservation officer. Do you take long showers, he asks. Do you leave your lights on, he asks. Now, you know, I started thinking, I'm thinking, well, possible reasons for differences in energy consumption between two identical homes, remember you said homes, not people. Uh, it, first, the people in each house might be different. <laughs> you know, they have different lifestyles. They have different needs. Uh, the occupant in one house might be single and orders out pizza all the time instead of cooking, so he saves a lot of energy not turning that stove on, but he's running somebody else's stove somewhere else. While the occupants of the other home might be a family of four to stay home and cook. Have, have different activities. They've got kids watching one TV in one room, another TV in another room, whereas the guy in the other house just by himself watching one TV or not watching TV at all. Uh, you know, or, you know, a single occupant in one home could be inactive while the uh, single occupant of the other home is active and productive. Maybe he's running an office out of his home. Maybe he's working. Maybe he's servicing clients or otherwise using more energy. But the fact that one home uses twice that of the other might just mean using 10 kilowatt hours as opposed to 5. Uh, both unrealistically low power usages. And, of course, a final reason might be that, you know, uh, Robert and I live in a low-power home while Al Gore and David Suzuki share the power-guzzling home. <laughs> that could yeah. be the reason, right? Yeah. It's all about choice and lifestyle. But the, arg but the article continues. The, quote, the conservationist, re referring to Mr. Peter Love, has returned to the private sector where he communicates his green message as the head of Love Energy Consultants, using homeowners to implement energy-efficient measures. Now we see the, the impetus. Somebody's trying to push a green business here, eh? And he says, the first thing to think about... What would, what would be the first thing to think about if you were thinking about the environment? If you were thinking about the environment, what's yeah. the first thing? Yeah, what's the first thing? Pandas. Nope. <laughs> it's about energy and electricity. That's what he says. First thing you have to think about is energy and electricity. And, you know, when I think about these, my immediate conclusion is that we need lots more. <laughs> we should be producing more electricity by any means possible. So, you know, I have thought about it. And that's as far as I'm going about thinking about energy and electricity. We need more. Okay? That's number one. Of course, that's the one thing they don't want to provide is more electricity. The second step to is to believe that if you do something, it will make a difference. That's his second piece of advice. And I think in, in the face of glaring evidence to the contrary, I can't imagine how turning off a few lights or taking shorter showers are of greater value to me than leaving them on or having long showers. You know, that's, that's where it all comes down to, doesn't it? If I have a long shower, obviously I value that more than the pennies I have to pay for it, right? Does that make sense to you? That makes sense. So... 
am I wasting when I'm taking a long shower if I actually value it? No. If you're valuing something, if, if, if for example, the same, same thing, if I value the fact of leaving my lights on at home just to perhaps deter burglars or maybe, or maybe I just like the lights on when I come home, that's a value to me. Okay, I'm paying for it. It's that's my right. value. But your neighbor might say that's waste. That's too bad for him. Well, see, that's why. That's why all. That's why I'm saying everything to do with waste is one person's it's moral subjective. judgment against another it person's. Is moral totally judgment. subjective. There's no such thing as waste because nobody wastes uh, knowingly and stupidly unless they are totally stupid. And you don't find too many people doing that. You know. And then he then he says in his article here, the third step is to act. This is not theory. End quote. And to act, no advice of what to do. I'm thinking to do what specifically? Shorter showers? Turn off the lights? That's the only two suggestions we've had, right? And he's quite right to say this is not theory since there's no structural theory behind any of these ideas. And I think all of this would be best described as fantasy. Like Al Gore, Peter Love is in the business of selling efficiency in its most demented and perverse forms because... The argument I want to make is that money and economics are the only measurement of efficiency that matter to human beings. You can talk about efficient cars, you can talk about efficient houses, efficient energy, efficient this, efficient that. It's all pointless. It means nothing. And um, to, to drive my point home, we'll take a look at that after we take a break, and we'll hear a little bit more about efficiency from how they handle the whole issue on a couple of episodes of Star Trek. Come in. Why that razor, my friend? Why not the one I adjusted to perfect efficiency? Shaving is the human art form data. Technological perfection can shave too close. Puzzling. How can anything be too efficient? Thousands of things are too efficient data. At least for humans. We always come back to the human equation. Exactly. Have you continued to work on it? Constantly, my friend. Date 1514.0. The cube has been destroyed. Ship's damage, minor. But my next decision, Major, probe on ahead or turn back. Nothing, Captain. No contacts, no objects in any direction. Care to speculate on what we'll find if we go on ahead? Speculate? No. Logically, we'll discover the intelligence which sent out the cube. Intelligence different from ours or superior? Probably both. And if you're asking the logical decision to make... No, I'm not. The mission of the Enterprise is to seek out and contact alien life. Has it occurred to you that there's a certain inefficiency in constantly questioning me on things you've already made up your mind about? It gives me emotional security. There you go, another another good reason for being inefficient, just for emotional security. Isn't that worth it? You know, it doesn't really matter what the reason is. It's a subjective call. People can do what they want with the energy that they have, and it's really nobody else's business. And yet, the whole industry, everything you hear in the radio, is based on knocking down what you just said. You know why? Because government has taken it upon themselves to create the energy that we use. If there was a private uh, private market for energy, energy distribution, creation, whatever, who would really care? Hey, we'd be producing our own energy. We would have been doing it a long time ago instead of supporting the debt of Ontario Hydro being forced to pay debt. If I look at that Ontario Hydro bill and the, and the raises that you're going to get in your energy this year, folks, you're going to just crap, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, it's your, your energy bill will almost double. Yes, just, the, uh, the, uh, just with the smart bill. meters and everything. Yeah. But, you know, according to the green machine, they say that each of us should be using less fuel, less gas, less power, energy, etc., in some mystical hope that this approach will lessen mankind impact on the environment or in actual fact CO2 which is their current fad which is mm-hmm. I think slowly going by the wayside because it's pretty well been proven not to be the case but you know all of this whole approach I think is just wrong what each of us should be doing if I'm going to give you any advice at all is just use your energy more productively and that way that's what that's how you minimize waste and that means make sure you enjoy it when you use it that's often what up all productivity means because using less I don't think is the same as wasting less 
waste can only be evaluated by the producer or the consumer, not by people and bureaucrats who've demonstrated their incapability of creating enough energy to sustain what we really have, and that's a growing population. That's what's causing the, the, the need for more energy all the time. Not just the fact that we're living a better lifestyle, but also by the fact that the population is growing, but also by the fact that we're living a better lifestyle. And waste... I think, can only be objectively measured by money, by finances, economics. And I'm going to get into why that is. Uh, for example, municipal authorities believe that you're wasting gasoline when you idle your car at specific locations or in between their magical temperatures. But whenever I idle my car, I'll tell you, I'm doing that for a reason, and I do not regard it as a waste. I never run my car for no reason. I drive very, 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 very little. The fact that we were talking about that with my mom yesterday, I last filled up in, just at the end of November, okay, and I'm driving a little no way. I kid you not. <laughs> and I just filled up again yesterday, And um, but the amazing thing is, you know, I hardly drive that poor little car, and it sits outside for three, four days in the cold. So if I'm driving around, I'm not going to be turning the car on and off every opportunity I get. I'm going to let it run, give the battery some time to charge, and I do not see that as a waste. Somebody who doesn't know my lifestyle and doesn't know how I live, who thinks I'm on the road wasting my gas? He'll come up to me, bang on my window, and say, "Oh, you're a, you're 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 hurting the whatever he thinks I'm hurting, which is all in his mind anyway." So, that's just one personal example, but you know the psychology of waste, and, and this is what really got me going about this when I started thinking about it, is as Ayn Rand always said, it's always predicated by some perceived necessity. Need need becomes the, the thing that justifies anything, even if you're totally opposed to it in every other category of human ine- endeavor. But if need is there, my God, you can kill people. You know, that's how important need is. It's okay to use energy, they say, you know, if it's necessary to survival. But if you go beyond survival and into the realm of leisure, pleasure, convenience, or comfort, uh, which abound in capitalist economies, by the way, then the use of the same energy is regarded as waste by the greenies, right? right? And always by those who are not the direct beneficiaries of that energy, too, you'll note. It's always somebody else who's... It's a little bit of that envy, that green with envy <laughs> uh, thing that's going on there. Another variant of the waste mentality you hear, I think, is expressed in terms of efficiencies. You say to be inefficient is to waste, right? But consider this, and and I've had people on this show, we talk about inefficiency all the time, and efficiency, and just from experience and listening to them, here's how everybody looks at it. Inefficiency to a scientist, uh, to a mechanic, or to an engineer is measured in terms of energy usage, material construction, design, all those elements that he's aware of that go into creating something. And if you don't have the most efficient technology at your disposal, then you are guilty of waste. You know what I mean? That's this, the, whole tech, the whole mindset. If you can make it more efficient, then by gosh, you should. If that shaver that Jordy was using could have been more efficient, by gosh, he should have made it more efficient, you know, even if he didn't want it that way. Now, in efficient, inefficiency to an environmentalist now is measured in terms of how much a given activity disturbs the environment. Okay, so the less disruptive to the environment, the more efficient and the less wasteful, he'll tell you, your activity is. Because you're not disrupting the environment. Uh, You know, inefficiency to an economist. You're looking funny. You don't agree with that one? No, it's just a total non sequitur. I can't believe anybody would want to bring in the environment as an equation of efficiency. Well, you're hearing it all the time, aren't you? Oh, yeah, no, I just still shake my head all the time, too. (laughs) Uh, But... um, then you get the economist, and he's looking at inefficiency difference. He's, me- he's measuring in terms of money, profit, growth, capital, etc. After all, to be economical actually means getting the most result for the least input, doesn't it? Yes. And thus to be e- economical is to be non-wasteful, to be efficient. But here is the catch. What may be scientifically, mechanically, or, or environmentally, quote-unquote, efficient may not be economically efficient. And mankind is an economic being. And that's the bottom line. So on the left side of the environmental debate, it's argued that by putting economic considerations first, uh, you know, is environmentally or technologically wasteful. While on the supposed right side of the debate, it's argued that green environmental policies and green technologies are economically wasteful. Here's a a question. And they're both right from their own perspectives. Here's an aspect of waste that you haven't really touched on. For example, um, you're finished with 
with the use of something, and then you throw out the package that it came in. Uh, came in, mm-hmm. and somebody might say that, well, you know, you could use that package for something else, but you're just putting it into the landfill. Is that not waste? Um, to him it might be, to me it might not be. If I have no use for it and I hang on to it, that's waste. Waste space. I've, I've, I used to collect stuff in my you, apartment. You become a hoarder. But that's right. Like that. And you want to see waste. And it'll all end up somewhere anyway. So if I can give something away to somebody, obviously I can. Anybody want some free DVDs right now? But, um, you know, I'm giving away a lot of stuff. <laughs> that when I clear out something that I no longer use, I give it away first. If I can, it goes in the garbage. What else can you do with it? Or recycling, which I also call garbage. But to me, it's no different. But, but you can do uh, what a lot of people do. Just store it in your basement, hoard it for generations until finally you die, and then somebody comes along and cleans out your estate, and it all goes into the landfill. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or a library buys your comic book collection like they did here <laughs> at the oh, university. Yes, you hear about right, that? Yeah. Um, but anyways, what's missing, I think, from each side of the debate is the human equation. You know, that, that uh, the data was talking about, the, the human yeah, the human e- equation. That's what it was, choice. Which brings me, you know, to another personal story about my heater and my open window, you know. I have an environmentally-minded friend who visited me one day, and he noticed I had a window open, and at the same time I was running an electric heater, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. This was probably in the early spring, you know, when, when, when you know, the weather's changing enough, you, you like the windows open, it's a little bit too cool, you know. And, you know, he says, uh, he says well, that's a waste, looking at the heater running, right? And I says, what do you mean? He says, well, you're running a heater with the window open. Can't you make your mind up? Why don't you close the window if you're going to be running that heater? You know, you can tell I'm being judged now, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, okay. I says to him, look, I'm perfectly comfortable when I have both the heat on and the window open, okay? I says, I get fresh air and warm air at the same time. Now, you're telling me that I have to pick between warmth or fresh air and that to have both is wasteful. That was basically his argument, wouldn't it have been? Couldn't have been anything else. But what I didn't say at the time was that in order to be a real waste, if it was really going to be a waste, it would be to not have appreciated my comfort gained at the expense of running that heater. Mm-hmm. Like if I've got that heater on and I'm sweating <laughs> and I don't really want it on, I forgot, then I'm wasting. No question. But does that make me a sinner? Sometimes I waste inadvertently. I just don't get around to turning something off when I should, you know? But, uh, no, that would have been wasteful. Sometimes I leave a light on in a room that I'm not occupying at the time. And like what you said, you know, I, my, my reasons could range from matters of security and ambience to comfort. But uh, whatever my reason, I never regard my doing so as being wasteful. And yet at the same time, I would never regard myself as being a waster of energy. Even though my next-door neighbor might stick his head in the door and say, my God, you're wasting energy. You know, I find it offensive. Actually, I find it very offensive. You're starting to see it the way I'm seeing it. Offensive for somebody to judge me and the use of my energy, that the energy that I'm paying for. Thank it's you, Robert. Offensive. Mind your mm-hmm. own business. And that's what I'm hearing all day long. That's what you hear in the radio. Every green ad sounds like that to me. Like my mummy calling me, don't waste that. Eat your supper. Do this. <laughs> nag, 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 nag. Yeah, just shut yeah, up. That's, that's basically, <laughs> you know. Now, you know, with respect to the heater I might use, suppose I, I pleased my friend by closing the window and then running the heat. What do you suppose his next objection might be? Why do you have the heater turned on so high? Can't you wear a sweater? Yeah, or have or the air conditioner so low? You don't need to have it set at twenty-four degrees. Nineteen degrees is comfortable enough, and you should wear sweaters. That's right. That's, what you, that's exactly <laughs> what they say. Heavier clothing, and again, you've got the nanny from next door coming in telling you how to live your life. You know, and that's what it's all about. It's about nothing else. It's the only motivation behind anything green is busybodies trying to tell other people how to do stuff. And that's totally. the only, only thing I can find. Totally offensive. These people should be, we, ha- we need protection from them. I, I demand police protection from the greens. <laughs> I, I really do. They're getting bad, you know. And once you cross that line about, you know, you got the heat too high, this too low, uh, you know, how is it any less conceivable to argue uh, you can wear your winter coat in a house and turn down the heat just to keep the pipes from freezing? Why not? That's true. That, that would do it, and that's exactly where they're heading. And thus, once again, environmentalism leads us back to primitive suffering, discomfort, and mere existence, because that's exactly where they're heading with all of their thinking on these subjects. And, you know, so, I don't know, can you think of any examples? Because um, I, I see you're getting my point now, the, the offensiveness of it. 
Yes, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm I'm thoroughly disgusted by what I just heard from you. It's, it's just it's starting to strike me as every now and then you you go by and you see the billboards up there of David Suzuki, you know, and those stupid fluorescent bulbs, which by the way are a great invention, but totally inappropriate for a lot of uses. Yes, and they're putting them again, forcing it on universal use. Right. Know, so, and I just think of that. Oh, there's 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 Mr. Suzuki again telling us what to do. Thank you very much. The world is not conforming to the way you want it, so you just have to use government force to tell us how to do things and use uh, government money and our money to put up billboards to just tell us that we're being sinners in your eyes. Well, thank you very much. Now I'm starting to get a little angry. <laughs> you know? That's right. And I, and I think more of us should be. Uh, not that we have to go out and march the streets and stuff, but we should be resisting more and we shouldn't let these people just get away with, with, with saying the things that they say. This morning I'm hearing uh, Jay Stanford on the radio talking about this, uh, uh, you know, you measure your footprint online. Have you heard about that? Uh, yeah. The city's got this gadget. I'm sure I have an article about it here somewhere. They're not the first to come up with that, though. I've seen... Uh, uh, you want to talk about offensive. Remember, that Pat, Pat and Teller, they had a similar project. Oh, yeah. We, we, we played that on the air, in yeah. fact. But um, just the offensiveness of it. I'm sitting here. I, I, I'm, again, I'm almost throwing bricks at my radio whenever I hear that guy, you know? And not only is the whole thing offensive from a personal point of view, it's 100% wrong. From the scientific point of view. <laughs> we covered that last week. Yeah, we covered we? that oh, last yeah. week and for three years in the past. Yeah. But for a little, for now, I think I've suffered enough for now because even having to contemplate global warming zealots who are pushing their irrational religion on me drives me crazy. You know, as, as to global warming itself, there's really nothing to contemplate. Uh, climate changes. Yep. Always and forever. And that's why anything that could possibly be categorized as climate control is in reality always people, people control, control. control. That's what it's all about. And that is the arch enemy of freedom and capitalism anywhere, and that's why freedom and capitalism always tend to be on the other side the right of this side. issue, on the right side. And that's where we'll leave it for now. We're going to take a break at the bottom of the hour here, and when we come back, Robert, you've got some interesting things to talk about, about uh, government itself, the role of government. I yeah, I'm going to start, uh, I'm actually going to be concluding my arguments from last week on on climate change and what the role of government is in such a issue. Okay, fair enough. I don't see the reason to demonize carbon. I'm John Charles. I'm president of Cascade Policy Institute, a free market think tank in Portland, Oregon. Carbon dioxide is an essential element in the Earth's climate control system, and if we didn't have it, it would be too cold for humanity to be here. So, you admit it's making the Earth warm. We bet you take long showers and wear clean clothes, too. It says here Charles was the executive director of the Oregon Environmental Council for 17 years. Oh, maybe he does know what he's talking about. 97% of all CO2 emitted every year around the world is naturally caused. Only about 3% is from humans. An agronomist at the University of Kentucky is running a pilot project with local farmers. Well, that's why they call it farming and not manufacturing. That's exactly right. Second generation biofuels, we can look at almost anything that's carbon based. It just gives us a whole wide venue of plants that we can use to generate energy. Well, as I said, Randy, this plot looks really good. Because... This project is exploring the potential of switchgrass. Keen claims it could enjoy huge advantages over food-based or first-generation biofuels. Switchgrass and other second-generation biofuel crops have pretty low inputs. We're not putting a lot of fertility onto it. Uh, the system that we have set up actually puts those nutrients back into the soil. It helps sequester carbon. So it's kind of a win-win situation. We're not competing against the food chain, and yet we're doing lots of good things for the soil and pulling carbon out of the air. Lovins argues that second-generation biofuels could create as many as three-quarters of a million new jobs in rural America by producing the equivalent of four million barrels of oil a day. However, with the industry still essentially in the test phase, very few barrels have yet hit the market. Those trying to change this aren't quite so confident about the future. Right now, it's somewhat cost-prohibitive 
I think it's going to take a while. And we talk about programs that go out to 2025, 2030, 2050. And certainly it's going to take that long to see where we are. Tad Patsek, a geologist and biofuels expert, doesn't foresee these fuels making a dent in the oil market in the near future. The second generation biofuels are much more difficult to produce than uh, fuels made of starch or straight sugar. And therefore, the efficiency of their production, in fact, will be significantly lower. Others are less diplomatic about this scale problem. Let me be as clear as I can. Second generation biofuels, bull It's bull It's bull 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 Let's assume the United States just wanted to replace its oil imports from the Persian Gulf. You would have to plant the entire state of Oklahoma in switchgrass with no room for roads, power lines, houses, or anything else. And when you load the switchgrass to take it to the refinery, it would fill a line of tractor trailers that would reach from here to the moon. You have to go way back to find Lovin's main opponent. To a 19th century English economist named William Stanley Jevons. Energy journalist Robert Bryce insists the fatal flaw in Lovin's plan is a fundamental paradox uncovered by Jevons. His great insight was that energy efficiency doesn't reduce consumption, it increases it. The classic example, a friend of mine lived in Washington. He would take the train to New York to go to see the opera. Well, he bought a Prius, now he drives. So, yeah, well, great, you're, you have an efficient car, but you're using far more energy for your transportation than you were before. Numerous studies, over 100 have been done on the Jevons paradox. All of them found that he was right. Welcome back to Just Right on CHW 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Vaughn, joined with Robert Metz. Isn't that an interesting paradox? It is, yeah. It's almost like if you think that you're saving energy, you've gotten rid of some guilt, now you can go out and actually use more energy. Which exactly shows what motivates the whole thing, too. It's like when you go to the gym and actually work out, you can go home and have your chocolate cake because exactly. you just worked out at the gym. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's, so, it's all so tied to the human psyche, you know, and not so much to any objective, measurable anything, really. Right. By the way, that clip was from the BBC News of January 2nd of this year. Yeah. Right. Um, actually, what we're going to do right now is I'd like to conclude mm -hmm. um, the debate we are we're having on... Uh, climate change and global warming, at least for this moment, because um, sometimes you can just beat a horse to death, and I'm getting tired of <laughs> actually We're both topic. getting tired of talking about global warming, but it, yeah. they keep sticking it in our face every day. You can't pick the paper up. No, it's a very you know? important topic. It's going to cost us billions of dollars, so we can't leave it alone as much as we'd like to. It's a cry and shame is what it is. The whole is. thing is... A, yeah, is it's a, offensive. Yeah. <laughs> Ought to be a law. Yeah. But um, I'm going to conclude with the role of government because nobody's talking about that. They're talking about the science, as we did last week. They're talking about um, how to uh, guilt people into thinking that they're going to be green, how to be efficient, waste, whatever. But they're not talking about what government should do. And it seems to be taken for granted, Bob, that whenever the world does not go the way we want, we expect government to step in and make it better. This, of course, is wrong for one simple reason we have not taken into account the purpose of a proper government. We've forgotten why we have governments. Or maybe some of us have forgotten why we have governments. A lot of people actually think the government has a responsibility in this issue, and I don't. It, 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 it's mm. funny you started that whole premise with uh, people who think the world has gone wrong. Already at that point, they might be making a false premise. Things might be quite all right, but they just don't think it is, and they want government to change something that is quite fine as it is. Right, just because they think so. Right. They, everybody wants the world to be the way that they want it to be. Yes. And it doesn't matter what kind of force that they have to use to do it or who has to die to get in the way, or, you know, for the, the world to work out the way that they want it to be, even mm -hmm. though the world is just fine by the way it is. You know, Ayn Rand defined the purpose of government in Gall's speech in uh, Atlas Shrugged, but it was reprinted in her book for the new intellectual. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend reading yes, that as, book. As a, as a standalone speech outside of mm -hmm. the novel itself. Right. Um, and, and I'm going to read a bit about a, a, 
bit of that speech just so we can remind people why we have governments, what the proper function of a government is. Well, just in case a lot of people don't know what Galt's speech is, mm-hmm. okay, in, in Ayn Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged, one of the chapters is known as Galt's speech, whose, whose name is John Galt, one of the key characters, and he gives this speech that's, that's a tome, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it explains to all the people of that society what went wrong with their society and things like that. And uh, I know that every time I, I've read Atlas Shrugged, I've skipped that chapter and gone on to the next chapter because I've always read that chapter separately. Yes. It almost reads like, and it has been printed separately. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like already knowing what's in it. Yeah. But to people that are new to it, I often hear, you know, I got up to that chapter and it just stopped me right there because it seemed like the book changed or something, yeah. right? But uh, just in case you wonder what, what is meant when people say Galt speech out of Atlas Shrugged, it's that, that huge chapter that reads more like a... Well, more like an essay than a than a novel. That's true. You know? yeah. yeah. But one of the, one of these days, I hope that I can just say Galt speech, and everybody out there in Radio Land yeah. will know what we're talking. And about. they'll know what they mean when they say, "Who is John Galt?" Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, let me quote from that speech. "Quote: The only proper purpose of a government is to protect man's rights, which means to protect him from physical violence. A proper government is only a policeman acting as an agent of man's self-defense, and as such." may resort to force only against those who start the use of force. The only proper functions of a government are the police to protect you from criminals, the army to protect you from foreign invaders, and the courts to protect your property and contracts from breach or fraud by others, to settle disputes by rational rules, according to objective laws. But a government that initiates the employment of force against men who had forced no one The employment of armed compulsion against disarmed victims is a nightmare, infernal machine designed to annihilate morality. Such a government reverses its only moral purpose and switches from the role of protector to the role of man's deadliest enemy, from the role of policeman to the role of a criminal, vested with the right to wielding of violence against victims deprived of the right of self-defense. Such a government substitutes for morality the following rule of social conduct. You may do whatever you please to your neighbor, provided your gang is bigger than his. Unquote. Majority rule. Majority rule. And by the way, that is the government we have today. Yep. The gang, majority rule. Your gang is bigger than me. More people out there believe that the, the climate change is due to human uh, intervention. Therefore, your gang is bigger than ours. Therefore, the rest of us have to suffer. Right. Right. So regardless of the objective facts about global warming, our governments are initiating force on us based on that gang concept, the gang that believes that man is responsible is bigger than the gang that doesn't. Prime Minister Harper has already given in to the bigger gang by agreeing to do whatever President Obama and his gang and the U.S. government does with respect to the non-existent effects of anthropogenic climate change. And since Obama has says that he plans to spend hundreds of billions of dollars giving these dollars to poorer countries to prevent them from using fossil fuels to develop their economies, Harper will do likewise. The Canadian government will penalize us for our fossil fuel economy in a myriad of ways, from outlawing the incandescent light bulb, which he's already done, to forcing petrochemical companies to spend billions to bury their CO2 emissions in the ground. Comical. That's comical. Uh, (laughs) And then to force car manufacturers to develop cars that emit less CO2, like Quebec just did, by the way. They're going to fine car car dealerships for selling cars that aren't uh, meeting their standards of CO2 emissions. These actions are... And you you just know mm. there's some other other impetus behind that. That's all... That's all the stuff for the plebs, oh, for politicians, it's votes. It's nothing else. It's just popularity votes. Their gang is bigger than ours, so we have to get their votes. Uh, these uh, gangs, uh, these actions, rather, are the initiation of force on unarmed victims, meaning us. This is not a proper function of government. The Canadian government is making rash de- decisions based on false information, at worst, or at the very least, conflicting information as regarding climate change. It's taking action where it does not have the right to take action. It's not in a government's mandate or purpose to spend billions of dollars of our wealth so that polar bear's habit doesn't change, or so that Greenland's ice field doesn't melt, or so that Nigeria has a wind turbine instead of a coal plant. 
That's not the purpose of government. Yes, the purpose of government is to prevent ice from melting. <laughs> the purpose of government is to you know, oh, jeez, it just goes on. Anything you can make up is the purpose oh, of government. Man. Remember, the purpose of government is to protect man's rights. Do polar bears have rights? No, of course they don't. Only humans have rights. Do we have a right to build a building in a floodplain and never have it flood? No. Do we have a right to always have the ice over the Arctic Ocean? No. Do we have a right to a stable climate even though forces well beyond the control of man might change it? No. If we have no right to these things, then the government has no right to force, to use force against us to change the climate, whether it's changing naturally or by man's hand. If the planet gets warmer for whatever reason, our rights are not endangered. It may very well be that in the distant future, some people's property may be adversely affected by thawing permafrost or by rising water levels. But the process has not been attributed to man. The process is so slow that people can take mitigating action now to prevent damage, and the process happens naturally anyway. Even if man did not exist, the climate is in a continual state of flux, and the governments have no role to play in fixing the climate so that it never changes. Not only that, there's it nothing... It can't do it anyway. Th- I was just going to say, there's nothing <laughs> they could do under the sun, pardon the pun, nothing they could possibly do to make any difference. There's only one thing that they can do, and I'm going to talk about that when we come back from the break. Okay. Take a break. Even their cartoons preach doomsday. Because greedy human beings will always lend a The environmental movement, to a large extent, has been hijacked by political activists who are using environmental rhetoric to cloak agendas like class warfare and anti-corporatism that, in fact, have almost nothing to do with ecology. Environmentalist Patrick Moore is a former director of Greenpeace. For years, he helped lead protests to save the whales and stop the H-bomb. But he then came to believe that much of the environmental movement is misleading people. So he quit Greenpeace. It's wrong, he says, for Greenpeace to tell people that forests are disappearing. The forest cover in the United States today is about the same as it was in 1920. Moore's critics point out that Moore now receives funds from the timber industry. But he's right about the forest cover. A third of America is now forest. Because of the very technology and chemicals Greenpeace criticizes. Technology that allows farmers to feed us on less land. So millions of acres that were farmland are now forest again. Also, timber companies plant trees. I don't read that in the Greenpeace fundraiser. That's because every time a tree is cut down, they subtract it, but they never add the ones that grow back. Chairman of the Works Committee of Missiles, where do you stand? As trade unionists, we have always been concerned uh, we, uh, for efficiency and for the individual worker. It is for that reason that we oppose the attempt of the management to overwork the man on the job. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW Radio, 94.9 FM. I'm Robert Metz, joined with Robert Vaughn. No, um, you're, you're Robert Vaughn. I'm, boy, oh boy, that's pretty bad. You know. you know what? I was just reading this off the script here, and I, but, I shouldn't do that. I but, should think about what I'm reading instead of just but, reading it. But you know, just what on the clip we heard, you know, even even unions justify they're going on strike for efficiency reasons. <laughs> the irony. Yeah. You were going to say... Uh, actually, I was going to say, if uh, anybody wants there, out there wants to call in, they can at 519-661-3600. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about the role of government in climate change, what they should do or shouldn't do, and basically the conclusion is they should do nothing. Stick to your role of protecting man's individual rights to their life, their liberty, and their property. However, I did sort of devise one thing that the government can do. Uh-oh. Yeah, the Canadian <laughs> government can do regarding climate change, and that is to withhold its contribution to the United Nations until the UN 
disbands the Environment Program and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change due to their false information coming out of these organizations. Wouldn't, organizations. There, wouldn't there be serious political ramifications from doing that, though? Oh, for, great for ramifications. Oh, I think, I think that... So would it be the wise thing to do? I mean, logically, it would be no. the right thing to do. And as a politician, he'd lose votes. There's no doubt about yeah. it. So he won't do it, obviously. And it's also the right thing to do, so he won't do it. <laughs> okay. Hey, listen to this, Bob. Canada's 2010 contributions to the UN's budget is 3.207%, or about $75 million this year, 2010. That's no small amount. In fact, if we are the seventh biggest contributor to the budget of the United Nations, even more so than the People's Republic of China. I just found that out last night. It's absolutely amazing, amazing that we pay more into the UN than China does. The United Nations, Bob, is an organization that was created so that the world's governments would have the opportunity to talk and prevent war. While this is totally laudable, the purpose, laudable purpose, the UN has morphed into an agency of handouts and socialist propaganda. If the Canadian government wishes to do anything about global warming, it can stop paying into that organization of hot air. Other than that, do nothing. Right. And I think the UN shouldn't be even empowered to do half the things. I mean, with 80% of the the world's nations being socialist, or even worse, what else are you going to get from a group that, that's made up of them? What's ironic, and I shouldn't say ironic, which is tragic, totally tragic, is that our money is going to an organization to help destroy us. We're, we're, we're paying these people yep. to be our executors. And there were many people who spotted it when the, when the UN was being put together, but nobody listened to them, because they were on the right, anyway. Uh, you know, I was reading, uh, apparently tonight in the city, just, just to carry on with this whole efficiency thing and getting into economics now, uh, I saw a fascinating article, Vox Pop, by Sister Sue Wilson of the Sisters of St. Joseph, uh, headlined, Economy, Not Some Tyrant to Be Appeased. And she writes, uh, you know, for many, the biggest story of 2009 was the economy. It threatened to slay us all where we stood. You know, like there's this big beast out there, out there to get us, right? We respond as if the economy were some powerful tyrant we must appease. We have forgotten the economy is meant to serve us, not we it. What if we stop? What if we were simply to see the economy as a means to care for each other and the earth, you know? <laughs> maybe it's a dream, but maybe then again it's more than that. What would it take to move from imagining to make it real? Citizen engagement at best. By the way, the meeting's tonight here in London. Mm -hmm. Acting together for the benefit of the whole earth community. See, you think you're talking about economics? No. In this spirit, the Sisters of St. Joseph, in collaboration with the London Public Library, are hosting the Inclusive Economy Challenge at the Wolf Performance Hall on Thursday night. That's tonight. To explore doable ideals for, uh, ideas sorry, for growing an inclusive economy in London and beyond. I was energized, writes the sister, when Armi Yalitsyan, an economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, challenged us to work from a deeper sense of the abundant life, not more material things, but stronger community ties, not choices, but freedom, for everyone to develop their full potential. And I'm sitting here, huh? not, no choices, but freedom? What is she talking about, right? <laughs> what, no material things? Like, you know, like life itself, you know? And she goes, John Dillon, policy analyst at Keros, insisted the dignity of each person requires a strong sense of the value of public goods in which we all share. Oh. So your dignity well, depends is that communism, on... communism, sorry? Well, <laughs> it's, 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 if that's dignity, I think that's complete, uh, the opposite of it's dignity. It's Orwellian, this Yeah, it, it's just unbelievable. And then Jim Stanford, economist with the Canadian Auto Workers, recommended we put people back to work through strong government initiatives that are focused on meeting social and environmental needs. Like not making anything, not making food or growing food or building cars or anything. Producing like, anything. Producing, or, you know. And, you know, when I read something like that, I think, you know, I think we need a more inclusive universe. Some people should get in in the universe here and join the rest of us because <laughs> that's how this stuff reads to me, you know. If you look at Funk and Wagnalls, you know, what is the economics? It, it is of or pertaining to the development and management of the material wealth of a government or community, of or pertaining to financial matters. Economy means frugal management of money, materials, resources, and the like. It comes from the Latin 
oikos, which means house, and the Greek nemion, to, to manage. So it's like household management. That's where the word economy comes from. So in other words, if you're doing something efficiently and properly, then you are being economic. But of course, uh, there seems to be a group of people who think that economics is somehow outside of human relativity in some way. Now, it's interesting. Ayn Rand defined economic good, and it's interesting we call goods produced goods. We don't call them bads or evils. <laughs> we call them goods right. because they're good. Yeah. Right? They're good for us. In order for a thing to become a good, three conditions must be fulfilled. Not only must it satisfy human need, but also one must know that it satisfies one's need, which comes back to knowing that you're not wasting that electricity when you're warming yourself and things like that. If you didn't know that, then what would it be? wouldn't be economic. So, you know, and one must also have disposal over it. And economic growth means the rise of an economy's productivity due to the discovery of new products, new techniques, which means to the achievements of men's productive ability. Nothing can raise a country's productivity except technology. And technology is a final product of a complex of scientists, of sciences rather, including philosophy, each of them kept alive and moving by the achievements of a few independent minds and certainly not a collective you know you know unions and government parasites going <laughs> to tell us how to how to create things for ourselves eh? and um, of course Rand reminds us she's a, a disastrous intellectual package deal put over on us by the theoreticians of statism which is what we're hearing from the sister is the equation of economic power with political power You've heard it expressed in such bromides as a hungry man is not free or it makes no difference to a worker whether he takes orders from a businessman or from a, or from a bureaucrat. Most people accept these equivocations and yet they know that the poorest laborer in America is freer and more secure than the richest commissar was in Soviet Russia. What's the basic, the essential, the crucial principle that differentiates freedom from slavery? It's the principle of voluntary action versus physical coercion and compulsion. It always comes back to that. The difference between political power and any other kind of social power between a government and a private organization is the fact a government holds a legal monopoly on the use of physical force. Economic power, on the other hand, is the power to produce and to trade what one has produced. That's all it means. In a free economy where no man can use coercion, you can only do that voluntarily, right? And so that's how it is. In a free market, all prices, wages, and profits are determined not by some arbitrary whim of people meeting at a meeting and saying we've got to do this and that, but by a law that they are trying to circumvent, and that's called the law of supply and demand. And, you know, people talk about the economy as though it were some arbitrary beast, as, as, as this sister thinks, you know, imposing its will upon us, when in fact the economy is the reflection of our will. It's the only way that we ever reflect our will. Yes. And all political people are opposed to the public will. It's the irony of, of what we call democracy. The real democracy is in the marketplace where everybody votes with their dollars. They go out there, they say, I want this, I want that. And nobody's vote interferes with anybody else's. If I vote for brown shoes, you can still go get your weird green and red shoes. I'm not going <laughs> to stop you, all right? It's not like you have to buy the same color because one government's buying them for us all. And that's how people vote. And there's also the belief that because you're poor and you have no money, you don't have a place in the economy. Well, I got news to news for you. Uh, people who produce things like to sell them to customers who have money. <laughs> so that's and and the fact you know if we're all poor, that has a tremendous effect on the economy and what gets produced. If I can't afford to buy the big screen TV and enough people are like me, then they aren't going to be making them. As simple as well, that. You know what's happening here is that yeah. that nun is saying that she doesn't like our choices. Well, I've got one word for her or two words yeah. actually. Well, yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh, geez. Well, I'll, I'll have a few more. Mind your own business, maybe. Yeah, that's one. But, uh, you know, and if you're talking about an inclusive economy versus an exclusive economy, uh, well, what would an exclusive economy be, be one? One that, you know, has protectionism and bans trade, which is what's always advocated by the left. So they want to exclude people. So there you go. The ultimate, uh, you know, contradictions and turnarounds and just sheer nonsense of what people will try to pull over on you when they want to get something from you for nothing. And that's the end of our show today. And we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. You going to be with us, Robert? You bet. Okay. Till then, be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bed clothes, everything will be... I was just out in uh, Vancouver. I spent about a month out in Vancouver. And did you know about the glitch in the marijuana laws? That they can't, they can't uh, convict.
There's a glitch in the law. And they're just abusing it out in Vancouver. It's becoming the Amsterdam of North America. It's amazing. You come in on the plane, they start there. You are now entering BC airspace. The mask drops from the ceiling, smoke pour out of the vents. Oh, flight attendant comes by, gives you a Heineken and a muffin. How cool is that? 